This is the final whistle on Ocean FM. Tonight, the story of the Sligo man who's become the youngest ever Irish climber to complete the Seven Peaks Challenge. That's climbing the highest mountain in each of the seven continents. Ryan O'Sullivan will tell us how he did it. Plus, the sports stadium debate in this country is cranking up a gear as Casement Park in Belfast finally looked like it's moving. The League of Ireland is crying out for better stadia if it really wants to move up a level. But finding the cash and building a sustainable sports facility isn't straightforward and it's about to get even more complicated. We'll hear why. You're welcome to the programme. This is Austin O'Callaghan. Here are the contact details by WhatsApp and text 083 3500 530 by email ocean.fm.ie and you'll find us on X as well at Ocean FM Sport. But first tonight... That audio is from close to the summit of Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. Next time you climb Knocknarea Mountain or Ben Bulbin in Sligo, when you get to the top, have a think about this next Sligo man, 27-year-old Ryan O'Sullivan, who's completed something only a small group of people on this planet have done before, and it was years in the making. Ryan, who's from Grange in North Sligo, called into the Ocean FM studio to share his story with us. Ryan O'Sullivan from Grange in North Sligo is 27 years of age and last month he completed something that very few humans on this planet have completed when you compare it to the global population. Ryan, welcome to the programme first of all. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Before we tell them what you did, a little bit about who you are, where you come from and your own sporting slash outdoor activity background. Yeah, so Sligo man, born and bred um, from Grange, Rinrone Grange. Um, grew up doing what everyone does, played a lot of football, a lot of Gaelic, um, and then a bit of a stroke of luck around transition year for me. Um, took a pivot, uh, had an experience uh, climbing the first of my seven summits, and yeah, from there, it's taken a turn in a completely different direction. Um, work in Dublin currently full-time, data analyst for Flutter Entertainment, and... Yeah, in my spare time, I climb a bit of mountains. Okay, so take me back. Did you go to school in Grange? No, I went to school in Bundoran. Okay. Yeah, in my so area. you were playing football, playing with St. Malosh Gales, doing the, the normal sporting things I, I wanted. And then you started taking an interest in something a bit more than a 60-minute football match, so to speak. Yeah. Where, where did that kind of curiosity start? I don't know if it was curiosity at the start, necessarily. It was kind of random. So I was in transition year in my in Bundoran and a man named Dean McKeever came in and he was trying to find students to go to Africa with, to Tanzania, to climb the highest freestanding mountain in the world, Kilimanjaro. And obviously I definitely would have the tendency to put my hand straight up for something like that, um, even from a young age. And so obviously all the hands shot up, including mine and a few of my friends. And 
you know, eventually we hear the details of what's involved, mainly your parents hear about the details of what's involved and, you know, what needs to be done and it quickly hands come come down and eventually there was a few hands left up, me and my friends, and we basically decided and there was a meeting amongst the parents and ourselves and we decided that we were going to do fundraising effort to fund the expedition and to raise money for charities um, and we went off with Ian and started the journey there but I don't think if he hadn't come into the school to talk it wasn't something that potentially was on my radar I think Mountaineering found me I don't know if if he hadn't come in would I have found it it's hard to tell but What age were you when this Africa trip to Kilimanjaro came up? I was 16 um, I think I was 15 actually by the time I committed to it but by the time I left to go to it I was 16 in July 2012 So you went to Africa and did you climb the mountain? Yeah, yeah we got up um, me and my friends alongside Ian McKeever we got to the top the start of July 2012 um, and I remember standing on top of it and just thinking yeah this is it now I had had thoughts and I had there was a lot of in my head that I wasn't admitting to people before I even got there but Okay, but but just to go back to that sixteen-year-old who you're a relative novice, I'm sure you got training and preparation that you know this isn't climbing Karen Tuhill in Kerry. This is a pretty high peak, and you're going to be need to be well prepared. And you were you had adult supervision with you going up this thing. But like, how long does it take you to climb that mountain? That took us a week up and two days down. Right. So we took there's there's loads of routes on Kilimanjaro. There's sharper. Uh, steeper, more direct routes and then there's the gradual routes that we did. We did the Lamosho route which is a seven day hike where you go through five different ecosystems. It's a fantastic experience compared to some of the other quicker ones. Um, but yeah, it was just an insane experience for a 16 year old and completely changed. So on top of Kilimanjaro, you were saying to yourself, yeah, I'd like to do more of this. But even before this, so Ian McKeever himself held the world record. He's an Irishman from Wicklow and he he held the world record for the fastest man or woman to climb all seven of the seven summits. He did it in 156 days at the time. That's world record has since been beat. But when I heard that, I, that's what I latched on to. So before I even went to Kilimanjaro, I could have told you any stat. I could have told you the routes, the camps, the heights of the camps on all of them mountains. I had already sort of came up with that plan in my head of what I thought I wanted to do. And it was when I got to the top of Kilimanjaro, I remember looking out, it was a beautiful sunrise, and I just said, yeah, this is it. So you were already a mountaineering anorak, Ryan, is what you're saying to me. (laughs) Perhaps. So the the reason we have you in studio today, you last month became the youngest Irish man to climb the seven tallest peaks in the seven continents on this planet, which a very small band of humans have done down through the years and decades. You're 27 years of age. Yeah, so there's around, it's hard to get exact stats on it, but around 500 people have ever completed that challenge. Um, so yeah, very s- small and lucky cohort of people have completed it. I think it was first done in 1985, so it's relatively new considering Everest itself was climbed 35 years prior to that. So, you know, in that time period, there's, it's, you know, it's definitely the most sought after challenge in the mountaineering world, I would imagine, these days. Okay. A couple of questions jump at me straight away. Um, you completed the, the seventh peak on the 7th of January this year. Just to give people listening a sense of how this has consumed your life, when did you start the first climb of the first of the seven peaks? I started 11 years before then, at 16, when I climbed Kilimanjaro that time. So okay. it's right. it, it has, you, you phrased it correctly there, 
and I don't think looking at me people would sort of know how much it did consume me but it was the only thing that mattered to me in that period of time and if something needed to be cut to achieve that goal it, it, I had absolutely no problem yeah, doing I mean, that if you don't and I mean this uh, well attention you don't strike me you, you, you're, you're, you're a slip of a man you're a, sl- a lean you look like a cyclist rather than a mountain climber if <laughs> I'm I could... a cyclist as well if, right, that, okay. if that helps <laughs> yeah okay um the other thing that strikes me, there might be people listening who might not have realised, you know, what's, what, what seven pigs could there be? Are there seven continents? You're including Antarctica uh, in this, of course, yep. Australasia, etc. So there are seven pigs, the highest pigs. And this has become, it's known as the seven pigs challenge yep. that has developed over the last uh, couple of decades. Yeah, like it's... Um, so t- t- tell us, take us through the seven mountains. Can you name them for me? Yeah, Where yeah, they yeah are I'll go through it in order by of continent. what, what yeah. I did. So yeah. I started with Kilimanjaro, as we talked about, and from there, Elbrus in Russia would be considered the highest in Europe. It stands about 5,500, 5,600 metres. Then I went to Aconcagua, South America. The highest mountain outside of the Himalayas stands just below 7,000 metres. In, it's in Argentina. Then I went to Denali in Alaska, highest in North America. Um, Kosciuszko, highest in Australia. Everest, as everyone will be aware of, highest in Asia. And then Vincent, the one I most recently completed, is the highest in Antarctica. I'm assuming Everest is the biggest of those seven. Yeah, by a mile. Right. An actual mile. An actual mile, okay. <laughs> An actual mile higher than the rest. When did you climb Everest? I did Everest in last May. And is that different territory altogether? Completely. Um, in what respect? Loads. Uh, it's higher than all the others by so much. So it changes. Like every couple of meter, hundred metres, you tag on to these mountains. So just to give us a picture in our minds, so what height roughly is Everest? About, like? When you're on a plane from Dublin to London, it's about as high as the cruising altitude of that plane. Okay. Yeah, so it's 8,900 metres, just below 8,900 metres. And the smallest of the seven peaks is... Kosciuszko. It's a, it's a J hike in Australia. Right. Yeah, so... That's, that's the baby. It's the baby. That's the one that you know, you kind of just tick off whenever you get a chance. Uh, the rest of them require, you know, a lot more dedication and intent. Okay. What was it like preparing for these? Like, what sort of challenges did you come up against during these climbs? Well, at the highest level, you've obviously the physical, being in the best shape you can and being healthy. During the expeditions, then you've got to stay healthy. So Everest, like if you just use that an example, you know, you're there for two months trying to keep, you know, you're living outside on a moving glacier, eating poor food, um, basically wilting away in front of yourself. So like, and there's people flowing in, people doing Everest Base Camp hike. They're bringing in all sorts of illnesses and your immune system's shot because you've been living at high altitude for that amount of time and you're trying to stay healthy. Then you've got trying to fund the expeditions. Like, you know, you could be the fittest man or woman in the world, but if you don't have the backing from sponsors or if you can't come up with a way of filling these expeditions, you know, <laughs> you're never going to get to the start line. Um, and then there's the mental aspect. Like I was doing this for 11 years. So you come back from a trip and, you know, you might, you're on top of the world and then you have to get going again. You have to motivate yourself to go for the next one. So trying to stay motivated through 11 years is, I found tough. Um, looking back, I find it hard to believe that I through that time still wanted to do it as much at the end as I did at the beginning um, but yeah they're, they're, they're the just three sort of overarching pillars I would I would say on it 
What was the toughest or darkest moment, would you say, during any of the seven climbs? The darkest would be on Everest. Um, like, you know, Everest, like everyone knows what happens up there. You know, you've heard the stories, you've seen the documentaries, you know, you see people who've died uh, or who are dying uh, up there like that. At the time, you're in autopilot mode. I thought about, like, I had prepared mentally inadvertently like 10 years prior for that. So when I seen it, it wasn't as a shock, say, as if I put you there now and you were witnessing all of this. And But in hindsight, that is it's a crazy thing to be seeing. Um, one time I definitely was struggling was going through the icefall. It's known as the icefall, uh, the Kumbu icefall. It's where the glacier comes off of Everest and it kind of like crumples up and it's like a moving maze of ice that you have to go through to get from base camp to camp one. You know, it's the first thing you do at a base camp, but it is the most like objectively dangerous part of the mountain. You know, there's avalanches through it all the time. These pieces of ice can fall. You're climbing up over them and repelling down them. And um, you've climbed through the night when it's all frozen solid and less likely to fall. And I remember going through it the first time, middle of the, middle of the night. And, you know, you have the heaviest backpacks because it's your first rotation. So you're carrying everything up. And <laughs> I thought I was in good shape and I got two hours into this thing and I thought to myself, I sat down and I was like, I don't know if I can get up here. Like, this is brutal. Uh, you're freezing. You're carrying heavy backpack. It's so difficult. Um, but then, you know, you get your second wind, you get into it and you get going. But there was like a moment there where I was like, what am I doing here? Um, and you're so low on the mountain, you know, you're there for another six weeks and... It's only gets higher and harder, so. So from base camp, how long does it take in terms of number of days to get to the summit of Mount Everest? Um, it's just a few ways to answer that question. So when you go on your summit rotation, so when you've done the seven weeks prior to that to get ready on the mountain, it takes seven days to get from base camp to the top. Behind that, though, is seven weeks of rotating up and down the mountain getting higher slightly more every time. This is to acclimatise, isn't it? Yeah, so like the Everest expedition is stages, say, and it's, that's why it's not like the other mountains. So there's the 11-day the hike into base camp, which is in itself a massive, you know, commitment. You people, that would be a lifelong ambition in itself for a lot of people. And rightly so, like it's very difficult and people don't give it the credit that it might deserve. Um so then you get to base camp and then you have to acclimatize to that 5,500 meter height and get used to living at that. That's your new, that's your new sea level. You know, that's as high as Elbrus or Kilimanjaro and you're now living at that height. So you spend a couple of weeks just staying at base camp, going around some of the surrounding peaks in the Cumbu Valley, getting used to that air. And then there's an acclimatization rotation where you actually go up to camp three on Everest, get used to that air and come all the way back down and then Again, you descend even further and spend about a week then at lower altitude in the Cumbu Valley. So go down to about Namshi Bazaar, about 3,500 metres. And then when you get the go-ahead for the weather windows, which open up in end of May and might only open for one day, might open for two days, could, could not open at all, then you do your summer rotation and that's just another seven-day trip up and down. 90% of me listening to you is fascinated by this and then there's a little 3% in the corner of my, of my head going, are you absolutely mad, Brian O'Sullivan? <laughs> what are you at? <laughs> Probably I'm mad. Um, to me it's normal because it's all I've ever thought about. You know, like these things don't 
like I've I've thought about it and I've gone through all the scenarios in my head of what could happen, what you need to do when this happens, what you need to do when that happens, and it's like when anything happens on the mountain or when you're there, you don't really bat an eye. Well, I don't bat an eyelid, and I don't think any of the other climbers would either if they're prepared as well as I was. But it's so normal to me, you know. It's nothing seems mad about it. But I suppose for anyone else looking in, they're probably thinking, "What are you doing? Get a better hobby." Contrast the dark moment when you were going through the icefall with the beauty moments, the elation when you get to the summit of one of the peaks. I mean, was one finish more spectacular or more personally satisfying or exhilarating than another? Was it Everest or was it, are you going to surprise us by saying it wasn't that, that wasn't the top moment, there was another moment elsewhere? There was, there actually, I think there was um, Denali in Alaska because I tried like for, for Denali is like your first it's a step change up from anything you do before so I'd done Kilimanjaro Mount Albers Aconcagua and they're kind they're all you'd, you could probably classify them into one bucket you know you can with a similar set of skills you can do those three mountains you know um, Denali is a completely different kettle of fish okay well, I mean uh, my, our picture of Alaska it's the state in America that sticks out beside Canada kind of a, a away from the rest of the American states. You know, we have this, that it's cold. We know a couple of songs about it we can play here. You know, after that, we have limited knowledge. So tell us a bit about this mountain. Yeah, very different and very different to anything I'd done before it. Uh, and I knew that going in. And it's different in that there's support systems on the other mountains. If you need help, you could get it. Whereas on Denali... You drive out to tell um, to Talkeetna, middle of Alaska, middle of nowhere. You get in a small twin otter plane. It lands on the ice, on the ice, drops you off, and it waves goodbye. And you, as a team, are a unit, a self-sufficient unit, and you need to get yourselves up and down the mountain on your own, which also means really heavy sleds, backpacks at the beginning, um, extreme cold, hundred or twenty-four hours of daylight. Um, and it's just completely different to anything you've done before. Um, it's got objective dangers which aren't on the first three mountains I did and would only be comparable to the likes of Everest or Vincent in Antarctica. Um, and I found it very tough because of the way it's like, as you said, I'm a slight guy and then you're expected to haul 100 kg worth of gear and sleds and backpacks. you know. And that's for me, was quite a daunting task. And I thought I was prepared for it, but I remember that first day leaving base camp, it was completely a complete shock to the system. And the reason it was, I would have put it up there, standing on top of that one, is the key moment for me, or the best moment is that I tried to do that. I'd planned to do that trip in 2020. COVID hit, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it the next year. And then finally in 2022, I got to go. And it's notorious for you know low success rates, bad weather and just to finally get to the top of that mountain after planning it for four or five years was just amazing and I knew when I got to the top if you can climb that mountain you're in a great position to go and climb Everest so it, was a, it was a real confidence booster at yeah. the time yeah. oh once that happened I was it's go time I'm going to Everest I'm going to give it a give it a shot let, let me clarify the Dunali that uh, Ryan is talking about is not Dunali on the road to Manor Hamilton it's a different order of uh, location altogether in Alaska. Um, we're talking to Ryan O'Sullivan from Granger County Sligo, who has become the youngest Irish man to climb the seven peaks, the highest mountains in each of the seven continents 
on planet Earth, and only a few hundred have done this before. So he's in pretty uh, special company in terms of this particular achievement. Can I take you back then to January the 7th and to Antarctica, the last climb? What was that like when you knew this was seven of seven? Relief. <laughs> the, the Everest and that mountain, the primary emotion, first off was relief. Everything I did and give up and sort of put people through to get there paid off and it was worth it. Like I achieved what I'd set out to do. Um, then just joy, like, you know, it's I'd be lying if I said I didn't shed a tear on top, you know. It was surreal. It's it's still surreal. I don't think I've actually processed the last 18 months because I went to Nali, Everest, Kosciuszko, Vincent, like in the space of 18 months. And I don't think I've stopped in for a minute really to to think about it being done because this was a pipe dream for so long for me, you know, it was so unattainable. Um, so just complete elation then after the relief feelings. Um, Did you meet any wildlife in any of the climbs? Very little. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think back now. They're fairly barren places. There's the odd bird and thing, but there's not many... There's no polar bears, No, no. Or, well, thankfully, yeah, there's not. Yeah. As much as it would be nice to see them, I don't think I'd like to encounter them. <laughs> um, very little. Yeah, and you weren't on your own. I mean, you had climbing partners with you here. So, in Antarctica, it, Vermont was the name of the mountain? What was the name of the mountain? Vincent, Mount Vincent. Mount Vincent. When you reached the summit there, describe that afternoon or morning yeah so we because it's again 24 hours daylight there you can kind of climb whenever there's no as long as the sun is out and not behind a cloud it's it's relatively consistent temperature so you can climb whenever you think the sun is out and that's what you do Uh, that's the main factor for moving on that mountain whereas in the other ones it's when the sun's out versus not out so we set off pretty late like 11 a.m. Um, because it doesn't matter and we headed on up and it was meant to be a better weather forecast than was forecast and uh, or than what happened and we set off in relatively light gear for going to the top of Antarctica and yeah quickly the weather got pretty bad Um, it was much more windy than we had expected Uh, we at the time like while the gear was in our bags we weren't ready for it and we had some problems on the team with frostbite because of that um, which wasn't plan- obviously not planned or did- we didn't think we would run into that considering we heard weather that other teams had encountered earlier on in the season being absolutely perfect so we lost one member of the team on the way up to the summit about 200 metres from the top and eventually we got ourselves onto the summit ridge our lead guy did actually... When you say you lost someone 200 metres from the top, what do you mean? Descended. They'd, they'd, they'd had enough. They yeah. had to go back no, down. They, they'd okay. go back down. They had Sorry, frostbite I, on I five. I just wanted to make that... Clear. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, they had frostbite five fingers, so they had to go down. And they had to go down with our with our leader. So we actually had to jump on the rope teams of other teams and other expeditions. And luckily, they accepted us. Uh, I had actually climbed on Everest with one of the team leaders of the other expeditions so he was like yeah I trust that guy put him on my rope so thankfully he took me on and took another one of my teammates on and actually went to the top with him instead and uh, just because it's a small community up there everyone's friends and everyone looks out for one another so thankfully they took us up to the top on their rope team and yeah we got onto the summit ridge you could see where the summit was and I you knew at that point it was just a matter of time there was nothing that was going to stop me from getting to the top and 
yeah, about 30 minutes later, I stood on top and it was very, very cold. But I think you have so much adrenaline running through, you don't even feel it at the time. And um, like my eyelids were f- freezing shut every time I take off my 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 masks and just unbelievable. Um, we couldn't see out on the, there was a cloud cover, unfortunately, but even when you're climbing up on the way to the summit and there isn't clouds, like you're looking out on the Antarctic plateau where it's two and a half thousand meters thick ice all the way from there to the South Pole, which is 1100 kilometers away. And it's just a surreal place to be. And to look at that is just once in a lifetime, I think. And now, as you look back on this week's letter, like is, is there a low after the high of, of, of completing what you've completed? Um, not now, I don't think. I'm kind of delighted that I can just, I don't have to think about it. I, I can think about whatever I want now. It's, I don't have to do anything. Whereas for all this time in my head anyway, I had to do this, I had to do that. Um, there was definitely a low after Everest. Definitely a low. Um, and it was probably how I, the order in which I did them. Once I'd done Everest, I felt checked out a little bit. Uh, I knew Vincent wasn't going to be as big a challenge for me considering what all of the ones I'd done before that. So part of me was like, you know, it, it's it's a logistical problem. It's hard to get myself there. And like that, I still had to pick myself up and make sure I got the funding. I got to the start line, but I felt once I was at the start line, I'm physically capable to do this. And I was very confident in that. But after Everest, <laughs> like you've climbed Everest, it's you feel done. You know, for me, um, I feel like that was the crux of the whole challenge. If I got up that, I was done. And yeah, you obviously then know you've one more left. And I had set myself the goal of becoming the youngest at that point, And I needed to get it done. So I did have to just pick myself up and rally the troops and get going again but um, now I'm just happy to not have to think about anything So at 27 you've completed the Seven Peaks Challenge Ryan O'Sullivan you know realised a life ambition for many people what are you going to do next? That is by far the most commonly asked question I get uh, before people even congratulate me they're like what now? So it's like you build a reputation now for doing these sorts of things um, and it's funny I was Maybe one. If you do the Warriors run now in Strand Hill, people are going to look at you and go, what's he at? <laughs> I haven't done it, so I'm... Have you not? I okay. no, actually haven't done it. Uh, I was signed up one year, but I didn't... I got injured, so I had to pull out. But this year, I think, is just going to be about doing things like that. Um, I'm going to go... I, I've done the Lock Hill 10K swim twice. I'm going to go back and do that. And eat I just pizza, want to do, Eat drink, pizza. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do the odd run. Uh, I'll just go back to things that I enjoyed that I couldn't do because it didn't help me climb better or get me in shape for climbing like I was always big into swimming and things like that and I did the you know I've done the Lock Gale swim and I've done the Metal Man swim series and I didn't do them for the last few years because I was always away or training for a climb so I'd love to just go back to that for a while and do the things I enjoy and see where that takes me it's funny though I was on Vincent and I couldn't help one day in actually two days in and I thought to myself yeah I've got this and I found my brain for whatever reason thinking about some co- completely different challenge uh, I won't dig myself a hole by saying what it is no, but, but but the fact that your mind was thinking about something else was interesting yeah in like itself, I yeah. had all mentally I felt I had done this challenge even though I hadn't climbed Vincent yet it was like yeah I know I can do this um, so I was almost a little bit checked out and ready to go on to the next thing um, yeah. what is the drug finally 
of this sort of stuff, Ryan, for you? Is it pushing your body physically to its limits, mentally to its limits? Or is it a goal-setting thing with you? What has drawn you into this? Have you worked that out yet? <laughs> I've See, definitely up until this point, I haven't thought about that. I'm definitely just, uh, I should just go on and do it, you know. There's no big thing behind what I do, but there obviously is. I just haven't given it much thought, but I've tried thinking about what it is that drives me to do this. And I've... I think a part part of it is like I don't want to just get to old age and have looked back and not have done anything. Like, and no matter what you put yourself through now, in my mind, like no matter what I do now or have to do now to get these this thing, say this challenge done, by the time I'm fifty, sixty, I've forgotten about it. The only thing that'll last or remain is that I did it, and all the hardships that'll be behind me. So it's just like I just feel that pressure against time just to keep doing stuff because. I'm afraid I'll get to a point and look back and be like, what did I do for those 10 years or that five years? So that's kind of motivating me to keep going. But I also just think it's in my nature to want to do something that's hard. You know, if if I find out something's hard, even if I've absolutely no experience in it, I'll be drawn to it. Uh, it's just that idea of doing something that few people have done or that's really difficult or I know nothing about seems to have a pull on me for whatever reason. I don't know, but... <laughs> Well, it's a fascinating story you've, t- you've shared with us uh, to complete something like the Seven Peaks Challenge at 27, so young. Um, and whatever you decide to do next, we wish you well with it. I hope we do see you on the start line at the Warriors Run or similar events. We- we're going to make you... pressure now. We're going to make you wear hiking boots <laughs> and full mountaineering gear and carry a fridge in your back and wear the goggles and the whole lot of you. You have to have some sort of handicap going up there for, for that one to give the rest of us a chance. But Ryan O'Sullivan, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me on. Ocean FM. The Final Whistle with Austin O'Callaghan. Well, by now you'll know that the Irish government has announced it's going to provide 50 million euro towards the redevelopment of Casement Park in Belfast, which is one of the nominated host venues for the Euro 2028 soccer finals to be hosted by the UK and Ireland. The scrum for a share of the government money due to come online for sports capital grants later this year is expected to be intense. Locally, Sligo Rovers are looking to move on their new €17 million Euro master plan to develop the showgrounds. Finn Harps are trying to get their Donegal Stadium project moving forward after lengthy delays. And then there are the countless other sports club infrastructure projects that various groups, big and small, are looking to progress. But for any sporting group looking to get a share of the financial pie, there are going to be some important factors to consider. To enlighten us, we've been talking to Paul McLoon, who's an advisor to Finn Harps Football Club on their Donegal Stadium project. Well, there's been a lot of debate this month in particular, Austin, with regard to it. It was really kicked off by Donal O'Cusick, if you could call him a Sunday game in early February, where he talked about Party Keeve, which costs £100 million. And it, it, now a debt been carried by the Cork County Board of 30 million. And he's saying that the rest of Cork sport has been neglected because of this. And, uh, he kicked, you know, he also mentioned that there's far too many stadiums. It, this kicked off a response from the economist Colin McCarthy, who wrote a lot around, uh, 
you know, when, when we had the downturn and during COVID, and he called for a comprehensive analysis of stadium utilisation in Ireland. In other words, what he's saying is no governing body or the Department of Sport has ever looked at this, and he's suggesting <laughs> that there's far too many stadiums in the country. And then Gavin Comiskey in the Irish Times followed it up just last week with an article called Grounds for Concern, which was uh, commenting on the FAA recently branded the League of Ireland facilities as archaic. The new Dundalk owner, Brian Anscough, he described Oriel Park as a pigsty. And uh, you will recall also that the FAI asked the government last year for 390 million over 15 years to upgrade stadiums uh, within the Republic of Ireland. So uh, that certainly created the debate. And then this month, or, or, or the last week, uh, the, the Casement Park thing came to the fore again. The 50 million been announced and now the DUPs jumping up and down to say that the cost will go north of 200 million. So it's interesting in the context for me of local uh, clubs here in the Northwest. And if you wish, uh, we can talk a little bit about how it's funded, uh, Austin, which is called the Large Scale Sport Infrastructure Fund is the name of it. Well, yes, you've been helping Finn Harps in recent years with their proposed stadium development, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. But how hard or easy right now for sporting teams, clubs, organisations is it to access money? Well, it, it, it's quite a detailed application process, as you can imagine. But, uh, you know, it, you'd nearly need full-time staff to do it, but all of us do it on a voluntary basis. But, for instance, the last program, which the, the, the Infrastructure Fund ran from 2018 to 2023, there was 37 projects funded nationally uh, at the tune of $117 million. What people would be familiar with, and it's important to note this, is, for instance, Park Talchin and Navin uh, got $8.5 million, but the projected cost of it is $20 million. Similarly, Newbridge is $6, six million grant, $17 million is the actual cost. Sports Ground in Galway is after getting $20 million announced, but the projected cost is well over 40 million. So in the instance of Finn Harps, they got a grant of 4.7 million, but the projected cost initially was uh, 12 million. So when the government announced this, uh, and they answer your question specifically, Austin, the scheme says that it would give you a grant at 70%. In other words, if you're spending 10 million, they'll give you seven as a maximum. And that's the important element is they just don't have enough money. So you'd never get 70%. You'd be extremely lucky to get 50%. So while you may access uh, grant money, uh, the match funding required, especially of smaller uh, counties and clubs, and, uh, you know, it's not just uh, soccer or Gaelic or rugby. It's also swimming, boxing, uh, basketball, whatever. You know, this is the fund that funds all sports here in the Northwest. So if you're doing a major project in the Northwest in the next five or six years, you will have to apply to this fund uh, mid this year. Okay, so just to crystallise that for people, if, say, I'm involved in a sporting project here in the Northwest and the projected cost is a million euro and I apply uh, to this infrastructure fund, 
I might get 70% of that, which would be 700,000. I might not get that, but let's assume I get 700,000. The key thing to remember you're saying to me is that I've got to come up with the other 300,000 euro myself. Absolutely. And there's very few projects will come in at 1 million. There's a thing called a small scale infrastructure fund. For instance, there's sensible things being done. If you notice this week, uh, Sean McDermott Park in uh, Leithrum is uh, putting in a new pitch. That's 400,000. Bally Shannon, my own club, Erua, put in a new pitch at 220,000. So it's possible for smaller organizations to manage that scale because the gap isn't so big. But if you look at Sligo Rovers, for instance, that, that, you know, they're, they're projecting a 17 million development for uh, the showgrounds. Uh, so if they only get, for instance, half of that, they have to raise eight and a half million themselves. So it's it's a big ask. And I just, you know, this debate we're having today is to make sure that organizations and clubs throughout the Northwest are fully aware. Reverend says you chase the grant, it's handy money. It's far from that. That's not half the picture. And you can even remember last year when the, what's known as the Golden Visa Scheme, Austin was... Uh, it was in train for 10 years. That's where people from outside of Ireland bought a passport for 500,000. It was philanthropy. Uh, Loud JA announced that they had got 12.5 million of that, uh, and they were putting it as match funding against Park Talchin. And the whole scheme was abolished uh, following that in February of last year. Over the la- It was brought in during the downturn to attract investment into Ireland, but it was to go to charities, to educational facilities for sporting, but it was called a halt because uh, 90% of the applicants were Chinese. So there was a great fear that there was a lot of people getting Irish passports that maybe shouldn't have. So that avenue for match funding is closed off now, Austin. Well, in relation to the next one that's coming down the track that you mentioned a few moments ago, the next sports infrastructure fund, when applications do open, what's your sense of what the interest in that is going to be like? I mean, we, we know about the well-publicised development projects. You've mentioned Sligo Rovers and its master plan for the showgrounds. That's going to cost a lot of money. You've been involved and you are still advising Finn Harps on their Donegal Stadium project, which has been mooted for a long, long time now. How widely subscribed do you think this next funding round is likely to be? Well, I think it's going to be huge. I I think there's going to be a record number of applicants for the reason that, for instance, the FAI uh, has talked about Arkex stadiums. So after 20 stadiums, uh, they're encouraging at least 18 applications. And as I told you, in the last trial of five years, it was 117 million was allocated for the government. Uh, the FAI are going to look for, uh, you know, 26, 27 million per year. So they'd eat up that fund in one go. But if you look at the study, listen, I live in Ballyshannon. So if I look uh, an hour and a half from Ballyshannon, there's seven or eight stadiums that have a capacity of taking uh, 18,000 people, be it, 
you know, Celtic Park in Derry, Healy Park in Oma, at Brewster Park in, in, in Eskillen, Markovich Park in Sligo, Hyde Park, Roscommon, McCool Park in Ballybuffet. Uh, and then we go east and you have Clonus and you have Breffney, which is 25,000 and 34,000. So if any of those stadiums are looking for an upgrade, it's going to be quite significant money. And we'll go back to the... Colin McCarthy, uh, economist, who says there's far too many stadiums in Ireland. So thinking, you know, when, when uh, Donald O'Cusick was talking about Cork, he was thinking of Torless, he was thinking of Limerick, he was thinking of Killarney, all 45,000 capacity stadiums. But if this debate gets stronger, I'm giving you the example from Ballyshannon, all of those stadiums are within an hour and a half drive from here. So it does affect us in the Northwest as well. So if there isn't enough money in government, I would think, Austin, someone's going to have to make a critical decision on this and say, if there is going to be these number of applications, does this make sense? And also note in this, for anyone would say to you, Austin, listen, this is none of their business. This is our stadium. Our forefathers built it. This is a load of nonsense. You'd often hear that, but when you apply for a grant, you're looking for public money, and now the debate can be, and economists can come in and say this, because now you're using taxpayers' money. So I think this will be a great debate uh, coming up. For instance, in this uh, rally, Ireland's after signalling that they're looking for 15 million to hold the World Rally Championship in, I think it's in Limerick, Waterford, and Killarney in 25, 26, 27. So there's 15 million could be gone already. Daily Mount, we know, is a 40 million project. So, you know, if we're talking 170 million, Austin, you can see where I'm coming from, that I think everyone in this, in the Northwest region needs to go into this with their eyes wide open. Okay, well, I mean, given the demand that's going to be on government cash for sports funding, uh, but by the sense of how you outlined things there, are we going to, you know, in terms of that great debate we're, we're, we're about to have and going to have, Paul, do you think it's going to come down to having a discussion about, we're going to have to have a serious talk now about having multi-sport facilities where the Donegal Stadium project in its final incarnation might be a venue that is a soccer stadium, yes, but it's also a Gaelic Games one, it's also a rugby one, etc., etc., well, the biggest problem for the JA in particular is that the, the dimensions of rugby and soccer aren't big enough to host the Gaelic match. And really, the Gaelic can't make use of the other stadiums unless they're built accordingly. And that's not the case. Uh, like the showgrounds and the sports stadium in uh, Galway, I think would be able to host uh, rugby and soccer. But the... Uh, it's a debate that someone needs to have a serious look at. Uh, you know, if we're looking, for instance, my wife is from Port Leash, uh, which is only 22 miles from Tullamore, which is two of the, two of the most similar stadiums in the world. But, you know, 18,000 capacity, 22,000. They're only 20 miles apart. But who's the brave person is going to tell an awfully man that you play your home games in Port Leash? But... Things have to change everywhere and we're going to have to accept change. So to me, there's no logic in developing a multiplicity of stadiums that are never filled. And if we look at all the county grounds I spoke about in the Northwest, you know better than me, Austin, how many times is there a full house in those? And if there isn't, 
surely a central stadium makes more sense than eight. If we park the multi-sport dimension to this for just a moment, specifically on Finn Harps, you've been advising the club in recent times and been involved in the early germination of the Donegal Stadium project. Are you... Do you see light at the end of the tunnel for Finn Harps here, Paul? Do you see work beginning properly on this stadium project in the relatively near future? Well, I can be very specific on that. What happened with Finn Harps is that their projected cost was uh, $12 million. So when the grant was evident was coming in much lesser, and as I said, it's $4.7 million from the Department of Sport, uh, we revisited the design of the stadiums, the stadium itself. So it's a much uh, lesser stadium now, if you like, uh, with, with how it looks. It's not a big concrete structure anymore. It's a modular stadium, but it can still hold uh, 6,200. And it now comes in at 7.3 million is the cost of it. Uh, we've achieved another million from... Uh, the FAI and Donegal County Council to bring the money up to 5.7. Now, the match funding that is required is 1.6, which is much more manageable for a club the size of Finn Harps. I know they're looking at maybe uh, selling some assets, and I think I'd strongly advise them to do that. Uh, Because the thing has dragged on so long, they'll have to get their planning uh, permission uh, renewed. That will take about six months. So, But if to put the ducks in a row, we put up a projection that would allow work to commence uh, at the Donegal Community Stadium in early November this year for completion uh, within about 20 months from that. So I think the money is going to come into place and match funding, you know, whenever and when all the smoke screens are blown away, the big issue for Finharps was match funding and coming up with 2.6 million was the, was the first ask. Now it's 1.6. So any county board, any swim club, any boxing club coming in the distance saying, you know, oh, this is great. We'll get this and we'll raise two or three million. When you go to try and raise that level of funding in an area like the Northwest, it is very, very difficult. And reminding people that Tala Stadium, the applicant for that was South Dublin. County Council, and the reason they can apply is they get an awful lot of commercial rates. The applicant for Daily Mount is going to be Dublin City Council. Again, get huge commercial rates. They'll be the owner. The Brandywell is owned by Derry City Council. But in all the other areas, your local authority can't afford because they don't get income like the, the richer local authorities. So you have to stand alone. So there's no fairy godmother going to come in and wave a wand and apply for this for you. The instance of Finn Harps is the FAI at the uh, government hearing uh, this week said that they won't be in a strong position until 2031. So for all the soccer clubs in Ireland, they're going to have to do this just like Finn Harps. And I can tell you, it's a very painful process but to answer your question again, I do believe there is at long last light at the end of the tunnel for Finn Harps. Paul McLoon on the sports stadium debate and that looming scramble for government cash. A reminder that the final whistle is available as a podcast each week on oceanfm.ie or you can search Ocean FM Sport on Spotify to find it. We're back next week. Same time, same place.